All right, if you want to find Acts chapter 5, we're starting verse 12 today. Um, And I'm just going to do a quick recap because we're into chapter 5 now, but the stuff that's happening in chapter 5 in our text today is still tied all the way back to what took place at the beginning of chapter 3. So I'm just going to try to make sure we recap and uh, don't lose the context. So beginning of chapter 3, this is right after Pentecost, Peter and John are on the way to the temple. They see a crippled man sitting at the gate of the temple and they heal him. And when the people see him, they gather around. They're, they're interested in what's going on. So they gather around Peter and John and they're looking at Peter and John as if Peter and John had this power all on their own to do this. And so Peter gives them a gospel message, preaches Christ's resurrection, pe- preaches resurrection of us, each person, at the end of time in Christ, and that catches the attention of the Sanhedrin, and they're not happy with that, so they arrest them, and in the trial, they are not able to really accuse them of anything, so they threaten them, and they say, no longer are you allowed to teach in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John go back to the church, give the report of what took place. The church immediately goes to prayer as they've been threatened now and they're facing opposition. The the church immediately, first thing they do is they turn to prayer and they pray that God would do two things. Uh, That he would, in the midst of this threat, that he would help them to continue to be bold as they proclaim his word and that God would perform miracles and signs and wonders to bring glory to his name. That's when the place where they're meeting is shaken and loose that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he wraps up that particular part of it by showing us the effects of the Spirit in the life of the church. And so everybody's caring for each other, sharing their, their possessions where there are people who have need, making sure that there were no needs among the people. And there was just a general attitude of love in the church. Uh, But then we see that Satan uses someone inside the church to try to bring corruption to what God has just been doing in his people. And so Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. They uh, hold back money that they committed to giving. And God exercises judgment on them in a pretty severe way. Severe in our understanding, not severe in God's understanding by striking them down dead. And that brings about fear among the people, not just the people in the church, but the people in the, in the community as well. So that leads us up to what takes place today. And our text today is just a continuation of what's happening there because we're going to see the Sanhedrin is going to come back in the, pic- the picture and they're still irritated about what took place before. So it's still part of that. I just want to make sure we didn't lose that context. So let's go ahead and pray real quickly, and then we'll get into our text. Um, God, we thank you for uh, the account that we have in Acts, and I just want to pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to understand the, help us understand two things. Help us understand the work that your Spirit is doing in the life of the church, and how that can teach us what we need to be seeing in our church family. So we pray for open hearts that the Spirit would come in and do the work necessary for our church body, like you did in Acts. Um, Also, Lord, help us to see the 
the, t the tactics of the evil one as he tries different ways to, to uh, bring down the church and to pull people away from you. And I pray that you would uh, teach us how to pray in a manner that guards against those things uh, so that we are a healthy body of Christ here in uh, Metamora. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your spot in Acts 5, if you're able to, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? Starting in verse 12. So coming off of the stuff with Ananias and Sapphira, Luke writes, Now many signs and wonders were rec regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, Sorry, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so as we look at the first part of our text, uh, we see good things taking place in the church. So as you are following along in your notes, the thing that we're, first point that we're going to look at today is that the gospel continues to advance and many are saved. The gospel continues to advance even though the Sanhedrin has tried to put a stop to it, and Satan used Ananias and Sapphira to try to bring, bring some corruption and cr make the church crumble from the inside. God is in control, and he continues to advance his gospel. And so it tells us that there were many signs and wonders that were done by the apostles for the people and among the people. Um, but Luke gives us this interesting statement in verse 13. He says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord and multitude, multitudes of both men and women. So, first thing I want to point out here is that we see a fulfillment of prayer or a, a fulfillment of a request that was made. God brings about an answer to their prayer because in, verse, or in chapter 4, when they prayed, they prayed for boldness. And it says that they've, they've been out proclaiming the gospel still. And they prayed for God to do many signs and wonders. And so we see now that that is something that has not, it's not only just Peter or John or one of the apostles has done a miracle, or it's not like they've um, done a bunch of miracles and now time, you know, now it's died out. It's, it's, they're doing many signs and wonders and it's done regularly. So this is something, the, the amount of the spiritual uh, gifting that God has given his, his people to uh, perform miracles and show signs and wonders in order to bring glory to himself. It's, it's ramping up, and it's just, it's not something that's peaking and dying out, and it's not something that's sporadic. It's a lot that's going on regularly, daily. 
And so God has answered their prayer as they've prayed for that. And people are coming to know Christ. Um, the people who had just witnessed what took place, either witnessed as part of the church or the community who might have heard about what God did with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they're now seeing God, you know, in that God displayed his power in, as a, an act of ju um, judgment. Now they're seeing God display his power to uh, bring about blessings and, and health to people. And so he's showing his power to heal and he's showing his power through his disciples to uh, drive out demons and, re and release the oppressed. And so when the people are witnessing this stuff, they see his judgment and power and they see his ability to uh, rule over the spiritual realm. The people have mixed, there, there, there's, there's a mixture of emotions or thoughts that are going on. So Luke first tells us that none of the rest dared join them. And then he tells us that more than ever believers are being added to the number. So what could be taken as a contradiction in the text, which some critics say this doesn't make any sense, he's saying two different things. There have been people who've offered suggestions, and so one of the thoughts is that maybe Luke is saying that nobody dared join them in any kind of debate or disputing what they were saying. Um, they have, Peter and John have already demonstrated that they can handle holding their ground, their theological ground with the Jewish leadership. So some people say people, people just didn't want to get involved with them in terms of debating them. Um, other people have said that they think that Luke is talking about people in the community just kind of stood aloof of them and just didn't want to associate with them because there was this power that God was displaying and they didn't know if they wanted to be a part of that, especially after what would have happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, it's safe to say this. Whatever, whatever Luke means when he says none j dared to join them, it's safe to say that there wasn't a person who joined the church half-heartedly, and that's in your notes. There, nobody joined the church in a half-hearted devotion to them. Any who joined did with full devotion to Christ and to his gospel. God had displayed his power and his glory in a way that attracted some, but uh, caused others to want to keep their distance or be, f be fearful of it. And that's actually going to become a, th a thing that the church has to deal with post uh, New Testament canon, but when we get into the early church history past the New Testament, one of the things that they're going to face, and this is, this is just kind of a foreshadowing of it, um, they didn't have people who, here that wanted to join half-heartedly and just, and just potentially experience God's judgment, but once we get into the New Testament church, or the early church, I mean, um, there's going to come upon them severe persecution from the Roman government, and it's going to be persecution that, that tells them you, the Roman government would have been fine with them worshiping Jesus as long as they also worshiped Caesar because they implemented what was called emperor worship. They would have been fine. They wouldn't have been stirring the pot if they had just submitted to what they said, the Roman government said, and, and worshiped Caesar. But there were people in the church who understood that that was not acceptable. What happened when that, be when, when push came to shove, 
what took place was there were people who were devoted to, to Christ and they were not going to compromise. And there were people who had given, who had joined the church and what appeared to be a severe or a sincere devotion to Christ, a, a sincere convert, conversion. They, when faced with, with this threat, you either worship the emperor or we will take your life, there were a lot of people in the church who who left, either left the church or they compromised and they tried to mix the two. Um, and it caused a problem in the church. And so what the church ended up doing, this is how severe it became, and this is how serious they were about people not joining unless you were fully devoted to it. What the church ended up doing was, uh, basically, there was a three-year, for lack of a better term, a three-year membership class the early Christians had to go through. They were not allowed to join as members of the church until they'd done this three-year stint of gradually experiencing a little bit more of what the church was like. And by the time three years had passed and experiencing the pressure and the opposition from the outside, if they were still devoted, then they were welcomed fully into the fellowship. Um, and there were some pretty, there were some pretty stringent, um, uh, demands that were put on them, like there was some serious Bible memorization that they had to go through. So they were making sure, they, the early church did not want people to misunderstand what they were getting into. And so you've got a point in your notes too, that they were, they were those early Christians wanted people to understand what they were committing to when they became Christian. It's not something you can do half-heartedly. It is something that you devote all of your life to. When you call Christ your Lord, that means he is in charge of everything in your life. You don't make decisions without making sure they honor God. You don't, um, you don't do anything in your life that is not submitted to his lordship. And so that's what the early church ended up doing. And so even all the way back here in our text, we're seeing that people are not joining unless they are fully, fully devoted. And so Luke can say no one dared join them, but he also is able to say God was bringing people into salvation in the church. Uh, verses 14 to 16 um, says that the believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. They, and so people started then bringing their sick and the demon-possessed and people who were ailing with something out into the streets because there were so many signs and wonders and miracles that were being performed. And they were, there was a, an understanding, it's, at least in some of the people, as they th were thinking through this, that even if, they, even if none of them touched them to heal them, maybe if Peter's shadow just fell on them as he walked by, that there was, there was hope that that would bring healing. Um, and that actually looks a lot like the, this, this ministry of the early church looks a lot like the early ministry of Jesus. If you read places like Mark 1 or Luke 4, you see that it looks like Jesus' early ministry. Belief that Peter's shadow falling on the sick would heal someone is much like the bleeding woman in Mark chapter 6 who believed that if she just was able to touch the hem of Jesus' garment that she would be healed. And she was. And so Jesus is doing, among his people, doing things that look a lot like his own ministry. Um, but what we're seeing is this now is a much larger scale than what took place in chapter 3 when he, Peter and John healed 
one person. Now we're seeing lots of people experiencing healing. Uh, that was the crippled man at the temple gate. Um, and if the Sanhedrin had heard about what took place with him and how the people were running to these people to hear what they had to say, they're certainly going to hear about this event going on where people are dragging multitudes of people out into the street and there's lots of healings taking place. People are being healed physically. People are being healed spiritually. Um, they're certainly going to hear about that. And this is, this is important because this is a big deal for two reasons. It's a big deal just because of what's happening. This is different than what, this wasn't normal day stuff. So this is going to be eye-catching. But it's not just a big deal because all of the healing and the miracles that are being performed. It's also a big deal because two of these people, Peter and John, have been threatened already by the Sanhedrin. They, were, they warned them, do not do this, and they went right back out and they did it. And so you better believe the Sanhedrin is going to be hot about this. They defied specific orders after, after they were threatened not to do it. I want to draw attention quickly, just I'm going to try not to take too much time on this, but I want to draw attention to uh, some of the wordplay that Luke uses here. Um, he uses a Greek word, and I'm going to pronounce it because it, it has a, another Greek word in it. It's pronounced episkiazo, and that is what we translate overshadow. The word skia, which is in the middle of that, means shadow. Luke, this is actually a phrase that Luke uses frequently throughout his gospel and, and his writing in Acts. And so anytime you see something that's kind of a favorite phrase of a writer, it's worth looking into. And what's going on here is that Luke is using the, this play on words because what he says in the text is that Peter's shadow overshadows those who are sick as he walks by. Now, that term in Luke's gospel is always less the, less the reader who is Theophilus again, lest the reader were to think that Peter and John or the other apostles had power on their own to perform these miracles. That term is something that Luke uses when he's explaining something that God, God's presence has been heavily involved in. And so the first one is Luke chapter 1, his gospel, when he's talking about the Virgin Mary becoming pregnant, and she, he says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed. So God's present, presence is with her doing this work, doing this miraculous thing. And the other one is in his gospel, Luke chapter 9, when he's talking about Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they are enveloped. He uses that same phrase, when they're enveloped by the cloud. And that is, again, God's presence is among them. God is doing something that's not of the natural order. Jesus being transfigured was not something that was of natural, na couldn't be a natural cause. God is performing the miraculous and he is doing it with the power of his presence with him. And so Luke is drawing the reader's attention to the fact that these guys are doing all this stuff and people are running to them, but it is God's power. It's Jesus continuing his ministry through them by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so... They're healing people. They're releasing the oppressed by driving out demons. Now, God is obviously pushing forward the gospel, even though people and spirits have been trying to stifle it. He's pushing forward the gospel regardless of those threats. 
And as a result, there are people who are coming to Christ and being saved. But Satan is never going to give up. He's going to pull back and he's going to regroup and he's going to come from a different angle to try to put a stop to the gospel. So as we get into the second part of our text and your second point in your notes, Satan attempts again to stop the gospel but is unsuccessful. He attempts again to stop the gospel but is unsuccessful. Tells us that the high priest of so the Sanhedrin has now heard of this. The high priest and all who are with him, that's the party of the Sadducees, they're filled with jealousy. So they arrest the apostles and put them in prison. Just like the first time they were arrested, how that came as a, as a result of healing a crippled person, and they healed him in the name of Jesus. So the second arrest now comes as a result of a string of healings that are done for the crowd. And again, there's not just physical healings, it's also spiritual healing as they're driving out demons. There are two things I think that we need to note here to understand the viewpoint or the mindset of what's going on in the heads of the, of the Jewish leadership. So you have spot in your notes for a couple of things. Here's, here's one of them. When the disciples drove out demons, it demonstrated their power over the spiritual realm. When the apostles drove out demons, it demonstrated power over the spiritual realm. And you know that any time somebody engages the spiritual realm or shows some kind of power over the spiritual realm, people flock to that. Just not very long ago, I was talking with somebody who um, I don't know very well, but I was in a conversation with them, and, and he told me, I'm... I'm doing this job that I do, but this is not my passion. I'm pursuing my passion. And his passion was ghost hunting. And so he goes to places, houses or buildings that people think are haunted. And he, like, he loves doing that. He goes in those places at night. He tries to find evidence of the spiritual, uh, of a spiritual being of some sort being in there. And so when people you see it on tv too like you got ghost hunters on tv people who have tv shows about the paranormal people are people flock to that stuff and so when they're driving out demons and they're demonstrating power over the spiritual realm of course the crowd especially because they're doing doing it in um a healthy manner the crowd is wanting to be a part of this they they want to experience the healing they want to see what god's doing so that's the first thing we need to remember as we're trying to get into the heads of the Sanhedrin to see what's going on, that's the first thing, that these guys are showing, they're demonstrating power over the spiritual realm. The second thing is that we have to remember that they, the Jewish leaders, they have in the back of their mind all of the stuff that took place with Jesus still. This is not very long after the cross and the resurrection. This guy that claimed to be the Messiah just won't go away for them. They thought they were going to put a stop to it by putting him to death. And now his apostles continue to tell people that they saw him alive. They continue to throw it back into the face of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders as bl in blaming them. This guy just won't go away. And if you think about it, I'm sure 
because this is how minds work. I'm sure that they had all kinds of events in the life of Jesus running through their head as they're trying to figure out how do we put a stop to this. And Jesus himself, during his life, had quite a confrontation with the Jewish leaders about his power over the spiritual realm. Specifically, his power over demons and the ability to drive them out of something that they were possessing. Because if you'll remember that account, which um, is in Luke 11, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of being able to drive out demons by the power of Satan. And that's where Jesus told them, that doesn't make any sense because a house divided against itself will not stand. And so if Satan is divided against himself, his kingdom will never stand. And so Jesus had this confrontation with the Jewish leaders specifically about his power to drive out demons. And so I think as we're looking at the Jewish leadership and their mindset in this whole thing, I think these two things are things that are probably, they're racking their brains over these things, trying to figure out, okay, they, they c- couldn't deny the last time that they had actually performed a miracle. They can't deny what, that doesn't, the text doesn't tell us that, but they're not going to be able to, to not deny, sorry, to deny the fact that there are people who are being healed and there are people who are spiritually oppressed and demon-possessed that are now in their right minds. And seeing that their threats the first time did not prevent the apostles from preaching or performing miracles in the name of Jesus, now they are so filled with jealousy and anger that they arrest them in hopes to put this to an end. So as the apostles are demonstrating power to heal and power to drive out demons, and they are ignoring the power and the authority of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin now responds with a retaliatory show of power by arresting not just Peter and John, but perhaps all of them. Excuse me. The text tells us that they arrested the apostles and they were all commanded to go out and proclaim the gospel. So it's assumed that there were more than just the two. Now, it tells us that an angel of the Lord delivered them out of prison. And we're going to find as we get into the text next week that they didn't even know that they had gotten out because it was overnight. And the angel gives them this command. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Um, so he tells them, go to where the people are. The people are in the temple. Go to, go to where the crowds are so that you can proclaim this to as many people as possible. And it says in verse 21a, And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. That word teach is an important word. Because the apostolic ministry of the gospel is referred to as teaching three times in chapter 5 alone. They're not just proclaiming, here's the truth. They're teaching. They're, they're instructing. They are helping the people to understand that what they're proclaiming is true and why it's true. So you see them, you see it called teaching in verses 21, our verse, verse 25 and verse 28. The Great Commission was a call not just to bear witness to Jesus' resurrection, but specifically to make disciples 
by teaching them all that Jesus had commanded and taught them. So the call was to teach, not just to proclaim the truth, but to help them understand, instruct them. There's a great significance placed on the content of the message that is delivered by the apostles. So when we share the gospel, you get into a conversation with somebody at work, you get into a conversation with somebody on the train, on a bus down to a ball game, you get into a conversation with a friend or a family member. When we share the gospel, we have to teach what is revealed in the truth of the words of Scripture. How many of you have ever heard the saying or the quote, people, people they disagree on who, quote, who actually said this, but have heard the quote, um, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Anybody ever heard that? Um, there's disagreement on, among scholars about who said that, but, but I've heard people quote that. I've heard people say, this is what I live my life by. It's a great concept, like it's very poetic, sounds nice. Um, it's a great concept to live your life by. You know, you should be living a life that demonstrates uh, kindness and caring for people and compassion and love. Those are all things that are of God's character. But it's actually, that statement is lacking when you compare it to the biblical command that we're given. Because nowhere in Scripture do we ever see a person who who came to Christ because somebody did some kind of sacrificial act of service to them out of love, out of, you know, they may have been doing it because God called them to do it, but nobody ever comes to Christ in Scripture because somebody serves them in, the, in that way, but never tells them anything about the name of Jesus or the power of Jesus or the person of Jesus and what he's done for us. That's just not what you see in the Bible. And honestly, I don't know that you could ever see that in real life. You could serve somebody, and you could be, for all they know, you're serving in the name of Buddha, or you're serving in the name of your dad, who was a community guy, and everybody knows he was a service, guy of service, and you just want to carry his torch on, you know? You could be serving in the name of anybody. So it's good to serve people and to sacrifice and to offer that out of love, because that is part of, that is, God's character and he puts that in us but we have to instruct them in the in the truth of scripture and the gospel so there are two things in your notes when you are sharing the gospel with people the first thing we have to do is inform them of the of their need for Christ because if they don't understand their need for Christ they're not going to come to him so as you're sharing the gospel, you have to get specific with them and teach them. They, they have to understand, you have to inform them that they have a need for Christ. And then you have to instruct them in the way to faithfully surrender to his lordship. It's one thing to understand, I need Christ, but there are people who think that all you have to do then is, is you know, say that, I, Jesus, please forgive my sins. Now my sins are forgiven. Maybe you do an act to follow up with that maybe you're baptized or something like that but if all you think if if you think that all christ is calling you to do is to be forgiven of your sins then that's a pretty easy thing to do but there is this aspect of surrendering your life to him 
he does become Lord over everything. And so we have to inform them that they need Christ, but we also have to instruct them, what do you do now? And that's what the apostles are doing. They're, they're proclaiming the gospel and they're making disciples. They're teaching people. They're, the message has specific content and it is the gospel message that we see uh, throughout scripture. That is why Paul writes to the uh, Romans in chapter 10 of Romans. He writes to them and he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from the Old Testament he's using. And he goes on and he says, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And then he quotes again, Old Testament, he says, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He continues on, he says, but they, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah now, says, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, we, what he has heard from us? And so Paul concludes this part by saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul says, how are they going to come to faith, saving faith in Christ, if they don't know him? And how are they going to know him if he's not proclaimed? And how, are they, how is he going to be proclaimed to them and, and the truth of Scripture and instructed in all of this if no one is sent? So it is necessary that we inform them and we instruct them. Now, I love the 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 Old Testament passage that Paul quotes here where he says, um, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, the Old Testament, qu he's quoting the Old Testament. The Old Testament passage says something more along the lines of, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. I love that, that imagery that Isaiah is painting there because Let's be honest. Feet aren't beautiful. Feet are not pretty. I don't know anybody who looks at somebody and says, man, your feet are so striking, you know, or man, your feet are lovely. And feet back at this time, when Isaiah said that, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Is there an inside thing going on over there? <laughs> When Isaiah is writing, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, their feet were really, really gross. They wore sandals with no socks, and they walked dirt roads and desert sands, and the dirt roads that they walked on probably had manure on them as well. And so that's why it was such an act of service when Jesus, who was the teacher, got down and washed the feet of his disciples. That's why it was a servant's job, not the owner of the household, but a servant's job to wash the feet of a guest who came before they entered the house. That's why as the owner, you wanted the guest's feet to be washed because you didn't want them tracking that stuff in your house. Their feet were pretty gross, actually. And today, we don't walk dirt roads. We have paved roads, and we don't walk necessarily all the time in sandals or flip-flops, but we, we have shoes and we have socks. We have paved roads, so we don't have to worry about that. But you know what comes with shoes and socks? Sweat, you know what comes with sweat? Odor. And so feet are not, they're not attractive. Um, 
Some of us have calluses on our feet. So feet are, are gross. But what Isaiah is doing here is he's taking the image of the body part that's probably the least attractive, and he's saying this is a beautiful thing. They are beautiful when they carry the messenger to where he's going to deliver a message of good news. You all, we all have good news, the best news that we could give to somebody. Each of you has a friend or a family member or a coworker or an acquaintance who needs, to, he needs you to share that message of the best news in all of life and history. So, I'm just going to declare today, all of you have beautiful feet. You all have beautiful feet because they take you to the places where the people are who need to hear the message of the gospel. That's a message that can save them from an eternal state of separation from God, the God who created them, the God who loves them, the God who is not desperately, I I don't mean that in the sense that God is desperate or needs anything, but the God who so badly wants fellowship with each of us because he created us and he loves us. And that message can save them and bring them back into that fellowship. So I just want to, I want to encourage you that with this. As we look at, look at this text today, we look at what God has done and all the threats and all the attempts to stop the gospel and how it hasn't worked. I want to encourage you with this. You do not need to fear sharing the message of God and his salvation because God will not allow anything or anyone to hinder the gospel the gospel cannot be stopped. So I want you to do this as we wrap up here today. I want you to identify either right now or think through it today and identify a person today that you know who needs to know the saving power of Jesus. Make a mental note of that person. Write it down somehow. Identify that person and I want you to commit to praying for them every day this week. And if you are, if you're comfortable with this, if you email me that person's name, I will join you every day this week in praying for them. Um, now, here's what I want you to do. The first day, so tomorrow, when, after you identify this person and today and tomorrow you start praying for them, the first day I want you to pray specifically for this. I want you to ask the Lord to weigh a heavy burden on your heart for this person to understand the urgency of their need for him so that all you want to do with every free moment you have is get on your knees before the Lord on behalf of this person and intercede for them. And then every day after that, I want you to pray for that person. God may not, may not bring them to saving faith in Christ by next Sunday, but I want you to pray for them every day, and I want you to watch in anticipation to see what God is doing as he is working on that person's heart and mind, Okay. Um, prayer is something that is so necessary and the gospel spreading to those who need to hear it is so urgent. Um, So we're going to start this week by doing that and pretty soon we're going to start joining together in unity and praying together throughout the week on a regular basis um, to be able to see what God is, to offer ourselves, to surrender to him, to intercede on behalf of those who need to hear it, but also to watch in anticipation to see 
what kind of revival God is going to bring in the lives of those around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the message of salvation and that uh, every time it's been, there's been an attempt to put an end to it or to stop it, to stifle it or handcuff it, that you, you thwart that plan and your gospel continues to push forward. And I thank you for those who have put their life on the line for the gospel. And I just pray that we would not fear proclaiming it and we would not fear anything that man can do to us, um, but we would rather surrender to the one who has control over our eternal destiny and give us an urgency, um, a burden on our hearts for those who are lost to, to pray for them and to intercede for them and to cry out to you on their behalf. And God, work on their hearts and let us be able to witness the power that you are displaying in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen.